We pray, Father, to that end. We pray that you hear that cry in our hearts and draw us to you, that we may reflect your glory to a watching and needy world. And Father, help us as we strive to stand for Christ and stand in favor with you and sometimes in disfavor with this world. But I pray, Father, that you would build us up as a congregation to shine as light winsomely, fruitfully, and Lord, to know that we are on your side. This is vital for us, and I pray that as we come to that theme today, that you would teach us your word and instruct us in the ways of Christ. We pray in behalf of those who do not know him, you draw them to a place of saving faith even today. Feed us and bless our gathering here. Come Holy Spirit, we pray, and teach us your word, and deepen and grow and feed your church. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. To sit on the fence, the figure of speech we use to describe one who remains neutral between two opinions or two options. Sometimes sitting on the fence is a skill or at least a mere necessity. You might say he's still on the fence of whether or not to buy a new car or to push his current one another year. I spent a lot of my life on the fence on that one. At other times, sitting on the fence describes a lack of courage. I understand the senator fears the political fallout, but she can't sit on the fence forever. Fence sitting might reveal apathy or a desire to keep the peace by remaining neutral between opposing sides. We use it in a lot of different contexts. But when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our relationship to his people, and to his word, God has no room for fence-sitters. The consistent message of Scripture with respect to God is this, pick a side. As Joshua memorably put it in his farewell speech to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus was not coddling fence-sitters when he called his followers to enter the narrow gate that leads to life and to avoid the broad road that leads to destruction. He was not coddling fence-sitters when he called his followers to take up their cross and follow him. He was saying, pick a side and choose carefully for there is very much at stake. This very spirit reverberates through the prophet Elijah as we come today to 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember the setting as we merge back into the narrative. King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel is a prosperous and capable king. In that northern kingdom, some of his kingdom's success is linked to the marriage of Jezebel, a Phoenician princess and rabid follower of the pagan god Baal. Ahab has brought the worship of God and obedience to his word to a point of extinction. Indeed, Queen Jezebel has carried on a campaign to rid the land of faithful priests to Yahweh, or at least those priests who were syncretistic, that at least had a piece of the worship of the true God in their thinking. She put them to death, as many as she could get a hold of. 
into this vile and opulent kingdom, God sends that rustic prophet Elijah from the rugged region of Gilead east of the Jordan River, robed in crude clothes in Ahab's opulent court. Elijah declares, it will not rain for another three years, and only at my command as God's representative. Oh God, you remember, whisks Elijah away to the rugged eastern region of Gilead from where he's come. And he's fed at the brook Cherith there on the west side, or on the east side of Jordan. Then when the brook runs dry, God directs Elijah to Phoenicia, where he stashes the prophet, ironically, in Jezebel's homeland of Phoenicia, and thus on Baal's home turf. They're looking everywhere for Elijah. Ahab wants him dead. He's the most wanted man in Israel. But nobody thought of looking for him in Phoenicia, of all places. But here, on Baal's turf, chapter 17, God shows himself sovereign over nature. It does not rain. He shows himself sovereign over dearth. He creates food for Elijah and for the widow and her son. And he shows himself sovereign over death as the Lord raises the widow's son to life through his prophet. Now, back at the ranch, we can only begin to imagine the devastating effects Israel is suffering from three years without rain. Up there in Zarephath, Elijah's just fine. He's eating every day, he has a place to sleep and stay. He's tucked away in God's witness protection program up there in Zarephath. But south, it's terrible. In fact, it's terrible in Phoenicia, we even learn from history. And King Ahab is searching high and low for this traitorous troublemaker. There is a price on Elijah's scruffy head because it has become clear to Ahab and all Israel that Elijah's prophecy was no empty threat. And he has said it's not going to rain unless he speaks the word. Where is he? We want to force him to speak the word. That's the program in Israel at this point. So Baal is the god of fertility, let's remember. And the land is withering away to death day by day. This is very bad press for Baal, and Ahab is really angry. Meanwhile, God determines it's time for action. God calls Elijah to confront Ahab's apostasy, we see in this first section and movement of chapter 18. Notice verse 1, after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Uh, we're not sure if Samaria is just general region, uh, the, the territory of Israel, Samaria as the capital city, or if it's literally the capital city. So this line shows coming down all the way to Samaria itself, to the city. There's some argumentation as to whether he stopped short of that at Ahab's palace at Jezreel, where the next scene will indeed take place. But I think in all of these narratives, we need to recognize a lot of days pass. It sounds like one person's talking to another just within the, the context of that moment, but sometimes there may be days and weeks that pass between. It's just a summation of events, of course. 
But as he makes his way south, we see here in verses 1 and 2, it's time to leave this witness protection program. It's time for him, though number one on the most wanted list, to walk into the nation that is out to get him, at least the king that is out to get him. God directed Elijah, think of what we know at this point, he directed Elijah to the rugged region of Gilead, and Elijah journeyed east. God directed Elijah northwest to hide out with a Gentile widow and son in Phoenicia, and Elijah obeyed. Now God directs him south into the place where he's most wanted, and what does he do? He heads south. It's all, it, it all parallels so well the rejection of God's word by Ahab. Stands in direct contrast to King Ahab's disregard of anything that God says. Elijah just, the Lord says it, I do it. And he lays out such a beautiful pattern there for us. But think of what he sees as he journeys south. There is no question after three years of no rain and lacking the, many of the technologies that we have this, in our day, he's seeing people that are emaciated and starving to death and probably passing some funerals. He sees no crops in the fields, none. This is dirt. The trees are dead, dotting the landscape. Dust rises with every step of his journey. We can't, we, don't even, we can't even imagine what it would be like to not even have a mist fall for three years. Everywhere near and far are the evidences of a land that has had no rain. The consequences of Israel's disobedience to God. But as Elijah makes his way southward, the scene shifts now to Ahab's suffering court in verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Obadiah is over the household. We might call him the royal chamberlain. But he he is over the affairs of the palace. He has a job of, of immense responsibility. And he is able to act in the authority of the king in varying situations. The only thing that we could expect to hear after we read those words that he was, that he was called by Ahab, the only thing we can expect to read about Obadiah is that he is part of his morally corrupt administration. But what we read, rather, is that he greatly feared the Lord. As evidence, verse 4 When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Parenthetical statement there. We're going to find this information declared by him, but the narrator wants us to get it right out of the gate. Obadiah is not like Ahab, even though he works for him. Now we cannot know why he works for Ahab. We're not told that. Or why Jezebel allowed a follower of Yahweh in her palace. Maybe he was just so good at his job that Ahab put up with a true believer in his court, or perhaps Obadiah kept his faith fairly quiet, sharing it only with the greatest of care, as our brothers and sisters must do in places such as North Korea. Many of them fearful to even speak their faith in Christ to their children, lest they be taken from them this was the case, Obadiah was not a coward. He was not holding his faith quiet because of his fear. 
Jezebel cut off God's prophets, verse 4. Obadiah then risked his life to save some of those prophets. He risked his life every day by feeding them. He's going into this cave where he has secured some of them and he's feeding them every day. Whether he took it or not, he's responsible for it. There's over 2,000 caves in the 11-mile stretch of Mount, what's known as Mount Carmel. So the place where this scene is staged was a place where there were many caves. And uh, it's very conceivable. What was said here is, is certainly the truth, but it's, it just makes sense as we think of that region where he might have hidden 100 prophets of God. Now, there are commentators who pick at Obadiah, and they say, well, he lacks Elijah's courage. Well, uh, the difference is, again, that Elijah was in God's witness protection program. Obadiah was not. God hid Elijah and brought him on stage out of nowhere, but what happened then? He always disappears. He's always taken away to hide somewhere. Uh, That's not the case with Obadiah. If he flaunted his faith to Jezebel, or if she discovered that he was hiding God's prophets, Obadiah would not merely have lost his position in Ahab's court. He would have lost his head immediately. And it reminds us that believers have different callings from God. And we need to rightly assess those distinct callings. Think of this church, Eden Baptist Church, compared to a church of believers in Afghanistan. Those believers in Afghanistan must share the gospel, but they're going to do so very discreetly. As a church, we don't need that kind of discretion. We can make as many waves as we can possibly make overseas and even here in our area. We want to be rightly discreet and appropriate, We have nothing to hold back. That is not the case with them. And how we would go about approaching a lost world and what we would do as a church to influence the cause of the gospel in other places is very different than believers in Afghanistan. They've got to be careful. It's not going to get you anywhere to proclaim the gospel if everything that you're doing ends in your imprisonment or your execution. Think of it now personally within the context of our church. In the context of this assembly, I'm called to a prophetic type of ministry of boldly proclaiming God's truth to God's people. Many of you are called to work in godless, if not God-defying contexts. And I know as we talk about it, some of you are in places where the truth of God is despised and where some of the beliefs that you have are seen as hateful to others at your workplace. You must shine as light. You must exercise their courage like Obadiah did. But you also must exercise discretion. That's your calling. That's your setting. You are God's embedded representatives in the world's marketplace. Not to hide, not to be there fearfully, but to contribute to the prosperity of a society whose heart loyalties are radically different from yours takes some work. It takes some skill to rightly navigate where do I step out, where do I shine brightly, where do I keep things a little more quiet and to myself. This is not a hill to die on. 
I find myself in contexts such as that as well. There's a lot of things I'd like to say in my chaplain meetings at the police station that I don't say. Discreetly trying to discern where's the place to step out, where's the place to speak, where's the place to sit quietly for now. It's not always easy to discern that, but we need to discern our environment, our setting. There's not one way. Elijah had his way, his call from God, and Obadiah had his. And they worked synergistically together to be representatives of God in a very godless world. But back to Obadiah and Ahab, verse 5. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. You look at, look at verse 4. Do you see where it says Jezebel cut off the prophets? That word cut off is the word, same Hebrew word translated lose in verse 5. There's quite an irony here. Jezebel's willing to cut off the prophets, but Ahab doesn't want to even cut off a horse. So under Ahab's reign, the goal is to cut off or cut down God's prophets, but all efforts are made not to lose a mule. It's a kingdom that has everything upside down. And the famine is so severe, even the king knows not where to find a natural spring around which maybe there's some grass growing. There's some deep aquifers in the ground. There's some places where where water can still be gained as it's flowing down there from a long time ago. But where do you find grass in this situation? Even the king personally joins the scavenger hunt. He himself goes out to say, let's see if we can find some grass, keep my horses and mules alive. But more importantly, he heads out with a heart of stone that's displayed on a pedestal of self-dependence. It doesn't cross his mind to pray to the God of creation. It is stunning the torments a soul can endure when in love with sin. It is stunning the torments that a soul can endure when in love with sin. Rather than humble himself in repentant prayer, Ahab claws at what's left of the world that his sin has created. There's got to be some grass somewhere. I'll go find it. Verse 6, So they divided the land between them to pass through it, Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. Now, we don't know. We're not there. It's not a movie or something here. A video of this, but if Obadiah is face down on the ground when Elijah said this, I imagine his head snapped upward in shock. Come again? You want me to do say what to whom? Verse 9, he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. 
And when they would say, He is not here, He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here? What's he saying? What's his concern? Verse 12. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. I know not where. So, when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. The smart guy. I mean, he just assesses the situation real quickly. Uh, this isn't going to work. And then he adds this phrase, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. I, I, I think he's saying I'm not a fence sitter. I, I'm one who fears God like you do. I do not serve Baal. If you're going to have me do this, recognize who I am. Verse 13. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. Just a brief aside here with these hundred prophets. We'll come back to this as Elijah looks at this in a strange way. I just want to trail off the, take a little rabbit trail here just for a moment. As followers of Christ, there's, a, there's an important lesson here for us. As followers of Christ, we must learn to rightly assess our position in this world. The imbalance on the one side is when we get taken up wrongly with Christian leaders and Christian books and conferences and gatherings and movements of Christians, and we say, hey, we're starting to take over. We're really big here. And we get this sense that, that somehow we're the majority. Don't ever go there. We are always, as followers of Christ, in the minority. We are on that narrow road, and we're never going to be on the broad road. There's never going to be a majority of us. But there's a danger on the other side of imbalance, and that's where Christians say, I'm all alone. Nobody in this world believes what I believe. It's just me and my understanding. Now, if that's the case, you maybe need some counsel, and, and maybe you are wrong for being the only person that believes what you believe. But we can get discouraged, can't we? particularly those of you who are working in an environment that's very hostile to Christianity, you can begin to think during the day, there's nobody who thinks the way I think. Elijah's going to make that error. But I think these 100 prophets hidden in the cave is just a reminder. We're always going to be hunted down, we being Christians worldwide. We're going to be hunted down. We're going to be in the minority, but we are never alone. God always has his remnant. The first imbalance, we need to wake up. We are siding with a crucified Savior. But in the second imbalance, we need never despair. God will place his people in sufficient numbers in more places than we realize. 
the fact that I don't know who they are, that I don't know where they are, that I don't know what they believe does not mean they're not there. Elijah will have to learn that lesson here in in coming chapters. But in verse 14, it seems that Obadiah has every intention, really, to obey Elijah as God's prophet. He just wants to make sure it's clear that doing so will likely cost him his life. This one who's keeping prophets of God alive. So let's, let's this be real clear what we're thinking about here, Elijah. And verse 15, Elijah says then, As the Lord... As the Lord of hosts lives... Before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. What a beautiful, utterly genius name to invoke. Think of it. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. On that dusty patch of earth stood two lone men. Two believers in a godless, hostile environment. Picture it. They were the visiting rural high school football team with 15 players, none of which weighs more than 150 pounds. They walk into the home stadium of the defending state champs that have 50 players, none of whom weighs less than a cement truck. And Elijah expects his team to win. You say, wake up, Elijah, the the Lord of hosts, of armies. The hosts are all on Ahab's side. No, says Elijah, I represent the Lord of angelic armies. Obadiah, tell your boss, I am bringing the fight to him. Get him ready. The Lord is here. So Obadiah, verse 16, went to meet with Ahab with that assurance, and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Macduff says, they meet like two charged thunderclouds, and we watch with bated breath the bursting of the storm. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You troubler of Israel. Elijah is nothing but an evil agitator as far as Ahab is concerned. He's ready at long last to rid the earth of this man. Three years of frustration are bursting from Ahab's lungs in the form of this threatening charge. All the lost riches, all the squandered resources looking for this traitor. In this moment, Elijah finds himself where God's people often find themselves in a godless world. And that is blame for the consequences of society's sins. That's normal for us. We should get used to it. I don't understand why we express shock. This makes no sense. This is our world. In an oppressive society, we are blamed as the oppressors. Let's go back in time a ways. In a society whose evil-fueled slavery, more blame is placed today on Christians than any other specified cause of slavery. In a society where we continue to murder infants, in a society where the sexual revolution continues to destroy lives, Christians are blamed as the oppressors. The oppressive 
sexual ethics calibrated only to control society must be brought to an end. This is, this is just normal for us. We prayed for Hinson Baptist Church, a lot of connections in this church to people and leadership there that has had half of their windows broken out in horrifically horrible things of graffiti written on their building and intimidation and the like. What did they do wrong? Seeking to protect the life of the vulnerable, they're seen as the problem. This is the way it is. This is just where we're at. We're the troublers of our society. Well, how will Elijah respond? Do, do we see him weakly stand? Yeah, you know, sorry, Ahab, I, I really am. I, I mean no harm. God obligated me to this job. Don't, don't kill the messenger, please. It's just my job to tell you what God thinks. Would you work with me here? None of that. Verse 18, he answers directly, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. That's the issue here, Ahab. And Ahab should have fallen on his face like the king of Nineveh under Jonah's preaching right there. Since he did not, Elijah delivers God's judgment. Elijah is a messenger of doom, not the reason for it. Ahab is on the wrong side of the fence. He has violated the covenant. He has spurned God's word. This is the cause of the drought. And here on Ahab's home turf, Elijah proposes a duel between himself and God's prophets and Baal and his prophets. Baal's impotence should have been perfectly clear to everyone by now, but Elijah proposes a duel to remove all doubt. And as the narrative moves now to this idea, we'll just introduce it here today, but Elijah calls Israel to get off the fence. So he's confronted Ahab, who's on the wrong side of the fence, and now he is calling Israel to get off the fence and to side with God. Verse 19, Now therefore send, here's his challenge, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, that's everybody who will come from any region, send out the word, get everybody there that will come, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. This is the football team that's built like cement trucks. 850 are paid for out of the royal treasury. They are given this cushy job of supported by the state for them to offer offerings and do religious rituals that are absolutely meaningless. So Ahab sent, verse 20, to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. It had to be a spectacular scene. I mean, think of it. This is 850 of them that are distinguished by their robes. And then there's a lot of other Israelites that are gathering around this place. They're all ascending up this hill. And I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit of a hike. Up there, it's over a thousand feet, sixteen hundred feet at one point. So it's, it's a bit of a, a, a jaunt up the hill, and they're coming up to Mount Carmel. All these, this multitude of observers, 
It affords a commanding overlook of the massive Jezreel Valley, and it also serves as a prized site for sacrifice then. You can see the sea from Mount Carmel. It butts up right to it. And you can see over this Jezreel Valley, this massive valley, uh, a fertile, fertile valley once upon a time that is no longer. But there's a, there's a site there, a very key site, on this very fertile mountain of false worship. So once this horde of false prophets assembled and all the spectators were in place, Elijah turned his attention to the fence-sitters, verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him, but if Baal, then follow Him. Fence-sitters, pick a side. We don't use the figure speech limping between two opinions, but it's interesting, the, verse, the word is used in verse 26 of the false prophets limping around the fire uh, as in one of their ritual dances. So maybe we would use the phrase something like, quit dancing between the two positions. This dance between God and Baal has got to end. Or we might say, quit sitting on the fence and pick a side. So it was not that the common Israelite was a diehard Baal worshiper. That's clear here. Israel's problem was more one of syncretism. She pretended to worship God and Baal and Asherah and any other god that might send rain, make their crops grow, and make life easy. And with Baal and Asherah, there was the whole alluring sexual deviance piece as their souls shriveled, as joy was sucked out of their lives, as marriages stagnated, as the vigor of family life languished, as sexual disease snuffed out their lives, and all of it was, of course, Elijah's fault. There was no mistaking Elijah's challenge. Get off the fence. Choose a side. God alone is God. Follow him. But we read these very sad words in verse 21. And the people did not answer him a word. Why? Because they didn't want to commit. They wanted to remain on the fence, tapping Baal when that was convenient, and they were not opposed to God helping them out here and there as well. Float a prayer to God, maybe he'll answer you. They were not so enamored with Baal as to grind their teeth and rush at Elijah in rage and pummel him to death on the spot. It's not where they were. But neither did a single person step out of the pack and stand with Elijah and say, I'm with you. Not one. They were not willing to entirely renounce the God who delivered them from Egypt and gave them the land of promise. But they were also not prepared to suffer for him. And yeah, there was that whole intoxicating Baal allure thing, we have to admit. Think about fence sitting. There's two ways to sit on a fence. You can straddle it with one leg hanging over on either side, or you can spin one direction, have your face one way and your back the other. Where do you think Israel is? That's right where she is. Her back is to God. Her face is to Baal. But nobody says anything because no one wants to step forward. To this fence-sitting crowd facing Baal's way, Elijah's call is crystal clear. Choose this day who you will serve. 
pick a side. And under a new and superior covenant with this same God, we must answer that same basic call, every one of us. This call is there and it's repeated in Scripture. The Baal and Asher of our age have been upgraded for certain. For us, the temptation may appear on the screen of an electronic device. For us, the temptation may be made of shiny metal and travel faster than any horse an Israelite ever rode. For us, it might be our lust for ease and amusement in a world filled with technologies and travel powers, or it may simply come from the, what, the desired acceptance of a godless world. But let us never forget that Jesus was no false advertiser when it came to fence-sitting, but he came as a prophet in the same spirit as Elijah. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 23, He said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Or as we read earlier this morning in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There simply is no place for fence sitting. Perhaps that is where you find yourself today on that fence unwilling to really step over to one side or the other. It's possible you're even slightly struggling as you sit on that fence with a God who would do things like this, like take away rain from people for three years and punish them that way. Simply because they don't devote themselves to Him. Maybe you don't like that God. But what you're not seeing is this fact He alone is God. That's truth. If we're on the fence about it, then a judgment of taking food from people and making their lives miserable, that we start to wonder if that's really a good idea, if we like a God like that. But He is God alone. He alone is God. That's the whole point. There is no other, and trusting in anything but God is failing to honor God as the God He alone is. And He's God. That's the whole point. He is the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the only name by which we must be saved. He is God, and so He's like oxygen, we might say. Take a boat to the middle of the ocean, jump in and try to swim to the bottom. God is like the oxygen above the water. You have to breathe Him to live. It's not an option. Stay underwater and you cannot complain to God about your lungs exploding with pain. You can't complain that you're losing consciousness. He is God. That's all the drought was in Ahab's time. People refusing to breathe. It's going to hurt. I've I've said this time and again through my own journey as I recount it, but how distinctly I remember those days of hanging one leg over either side of the fence. Firmly planted on the fence, 
one leg dangling in the world to seek the pleasure there that it provided and believing that somehow we could also have the joys of Christ's church and of commitment there, living in both worlds, feet in both places, and I was suffocating to death. August 1981, yeah, that was a date. Uh, There are people that lived that long ago. (laughs) But August 1981... I distinctly remember the day and the moment that I swung that leg over the fence and stood with Christ. 1981, long ways. And I can say to those of you, maybe particularly young people, children, you're just not sure. It's your parents' faith. It's your church's faith doesn't look bad, but you don't really want to commit, I can tell you that there is absolutely nothing that I left that I miss. Not one thing. But what I gained is worth eternity. I don't regret anything that I've gained. I enjoy it. I thank God for it. It's like coming out of that ocean trying to swim to the bottom because there's a lot of other people swimming down and coming up and breathing the fresh air of a life committed to Christ. This isn't a self-help thing, something that you can do and pull off on your own. You need God's intervening aid But what is before us under a new covenant is to come to the terms of that covenant and to know that they are centered on Jesus Christ paying the penalty of our sin on the cross and rising from the dead and giving us life in his name and a word that comes to us as his people to deepen and grow and bless us as we walk in fellowship with him. So who do you side with? What side of the fence are you on? This rustic prophet Elijah, this man Obadiah who's trying to stay alive as he serves the Lord, these two on enemy turf, these visitors to the stadium? Or are you with the crowd, holding on to the cannonball as you sink deeper and deeper into the sea of death? Pick a side. Come to Christ today. I can say, by very deep and personal experience, that you will never, ever regret following Christ. You'll regret not following Him You'll regret what you've done to not follow him, but you'll never regret following Christ. Pick a side. Let's pray. Lord, help us do that. Help us to be faithful to our response. And should we have found ourselves 
going back in time and standing around Elijah on Mount Carmel, may we be those who would step forward and say, I'm with Christ. I pray that you would meet us where we are. There are those who do not know Christ as Savior. They've not come to a place where they've submitted to your sacrifice in their behalf to pay the penalty of their sin, to give them victory over death, to pull them out of the sea, and to let them breathe. God, I pray that you would sovereignly draw them to yourself and even through this message today to bring them to terms of the need to trust Christ as Savior. For those of us who know you, Father, we rejoice with gladness of heart to say that you are the joy of our soul, to know you as life itself. May we live this day, and as we picnic together, and as we carry on the remainder of this day, may we live it to your glory and the joy of the Lord. Meet with us here, we pray. Grant us your grace. Through Christ we pray.